This morning, I'm going to begin by asking you a question. This is responsive. If you don't answer, we're going to just have a moment of prolonged silence or we don't get anywhere. It's a statement, and I'm going to ask you whether you agree or disagree with it. Show of hands, however you want to do it. Our world is in crisis, is the statement. Who agrees? In crisis because of what? Sin? What else? How's sin manifest? Wars, violence, disagreements, disunity, immaturity, hatred, all those sort of things. So we have a broad agreement that our world is in some kind of crisis. The next statement I'm going to ask whether you agree or disagree with is this. Our church is in crisis. Not this one, the church. Yes? Right? There was more agreement there than there was on the first one. So we, we seem to think that the church is in more crisis than the world. Disunity in the church. Yes? Immaturity in the church. Yes? The first believers of conspiracy theories. Dropping attendance. Participation in church. That we're all weak and that soon as sin gives us the barest suggestion, we go running after it. We're all weak, and there's no immaturity. We're no different from the world. Wouldn't that be problematic? But what if I, instead of defining the church as a specific congregation or an organization or some institution, I defined the church with a, a big C, the church. The church in respect of whom Jesus says, I will build my big C church, and the gates of hell will not do what? prevail against it. So what's Jesus saying in the beginning to Peter, he's speaking at the time, he's saying that no matter what may come through history, my church is going to survive. It's going to be sustained. And if you're a scholar of church history, or if you've ever thought about church history in any way, you'll understand that there was a lot of persecution that the church lived through. Yes? And then the church becomes institutionalized. It becomes the Roman Catholic Church in, in the 300s. And there are popes that are good popes and popes that are bad popes. And then there are, there are people that run off to monasteries and they live away from the church and they do what they're doing there and there's Gnosticism and all sorts of other false beliefs and the heretics and then the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages and then there's war and there's ideologies that come up against the church and there's crusades because of the Muslim invasion and all those sort of things that are going on. And when we were looking at church history with the staff this week, we were remarking about how even when Marxism rose, rose up in recent history, and try to shut the church down, what ends up standing the church? Isn't it weird that somehow we think the church is in crisis, but the church is still here? Now here's the question, does the world have anything to do with the problems in the world? Does the church have anything to do with the problems in the world? Yes. We're called to be salt and light. And when we think of one of the characteristics of salt, it is to preserve and stop the rate of decay. So if the world's rate of decay is accelerating and is fast, maybe that's something to do with the church, maybe. And if there's not enough flavor of the right kind in the world, if there's not enough of the Christ flavor, the flavor of love and of grace and of mercy and of truth and of justice and of kindness in the world, and we complain about it, and the flavor that we're meant to be bringing as salt and light is absent, it's whose fault? The church's fault. And so here's a question. Is God left us hopeless 
powerless? The answer is no. Is God surprised by what we call a crisis? The answer is no. Has God given us all that we need to stand and make a difference? The answer is yes. And that's what we're going to, be, we're going to begin to look at today as we start a new series. And the new series is called Grace Gifts. Everybody say Grace Gifts. Very loud from this side. Everybody welcome the high schoolers to our service. I think, I think it's, what is it? Is it once a month they're going to be in here for the whole service? And once a second time you're going to be in here for worship and then you're going to exit. And these rows are going to fill out and I'm used to seeing Ryan Ski on this side. I don't know how to preach with Ryan on that side. I messed up, right? But you're participating as much as anybody else, and I'm going to turn and look at you just like I'm doing now. I can see when everybody's talking behind their hands and on their phones. But that's not why you're down here. You're down here to put pressure on me to not have you fall asleep in the middle of the service. (laughs) So it's me, not you, that has the problem today. So the new series called... See, they're listening more. They're going to shame all of you. Because they're going to shout louder than all of you. They're going to respond to the questions before you all do. The new series called? See what I mean? It's based on the text of Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 16. And so everybody turn to your Bibles, please. If you would like a Bible, a physical copy of a Bible, we have Bibles. They are English standard versions. If you want to raise your hand, if you would like one of those, there's a hand there, please. They're coming from the rear. Just keep your hand high. This means that you don't have to carry your physical Bible with you anymore because we have 20, 30 at the back. And when we run out of those, we'll get more and more. And if you forget and you take it home and don't bring it back, that's okay as well. We'll buy more and we'll keep stacking it up because it's good to have Bibles. Everybody turn to Ephesians 4 verses 7 to 16. This is the text that we're going to be focusing on over the next five weeks. And I have a, I have a, a task that involves introducing the series and teaching the first gift, which is Apostle which is too much for one week. We thought about stretching it to six weeks, but Ben gave us five weeks to do it in, so we're going to do it in in five weeks. What that means is at the end of today, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to have a Q&A session after the service. So after the service dismisses, if you have any questions, if you have anything you felt the Lord said to you that would have contributed to the body of knowledge that we have going on in here, if you thoroughly disagree with anything I say, I'm looking at particular people, right? (laughs) You can come and have, sorry. (laughs) And it wasn't fair. Um, If you you thoroughly disagree with anything, if you think it's wrong theology, you come and have that conversation after. But specifically, if there's something I say that you feel as if you believe the Lord is saying to you, and you need to tell someone about it, you need to ask for encouragement about that, you come and sit, and we're gonna do that in these rows around here, at the end of the service, right after we dismiss. So let's read beginning in verse 7. But to each one of us, everybody see that? Thank you. Does it say to the professional minister? Does it? Does it say to the person who went to seminary? Does it say to the person who stands up here and teaches, but not to the people who are sitting there listening? It says to each one of us. What was given? Grace was given, according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, gave gifts to men. Move down to verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, 
some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Everybody say, for the equipping of the saints. For the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Three things. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and for the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which, what's the next thing say? Every part does its share. Everybody see that in their Bible? you have a Bible and you can underline that, underline that. If you have a phone and you can highlight it, highlight it. Every part does its share, causing the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's break that down a little. And so you see in this text, there is a description of a crisis. Verse 14, we should no longer be children, which means that if we're still children, there's a problem. That's immaturity. If you're still a child and you're an adult and you're still little and you're thinking and acting like a child, that's problematic. What else did it say? Tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. What does that mean? It means that we're unstable. It means that when someone says this is good, you run to that. When someone says this is good, you run to that. When someone says this is the thing that we should do, we run to that. When someone says that's the thing we should do, we run to that. Carried about with every wave of doctrine, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. That means that the person that's saying, let's go this way, let's go that way, let's go that way, go that way, ultimately, at the core of what they've got is they're trying to trick us. They're trying to distract us, and they're trying to get us to go in directions that we shouldn't go in. But it seems to say that in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting is what they're doing. So that means those winds of doctrine, this is why I said I think Christians are the first to believe conspiracy theories. It means we don't check them. It means someone says, this is a good idea, and we don't check it. We don't make sure that it's true. We believe it, and we tweet about it, we tell other people about it, and we spread things that people in their cunning, deceitful plotting and trickery have introduced into thinking to cause us to go off course. This is the crisis. And the crisis is also not being or doing the other things there, so not speaking the truth in love, as in verse 15 not growing up to maturity, disunity. And the answer to the crisis we see from this text is grace gifts to each of us, which are the gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, verse 11. The exercise of those gifts magically, wouldn't you believe, would yield. If you have a crisis and an answer to the crisis, and you use the gifts, what happens to the crisis? The crisis goes away. But if we don't exercise the gifts, what happens to the crisis? The crisis is still here. And so if a couple exercise the gifts, the crisis is still here. If three exercise the gifts, the crisis is still here. If the entire church exercises the gift, the crisis goes away. So you understand why the words in the text are every part doing its share to each one of us, gifts were given. And these gifts are given for what? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. How much of the church is a saint? Everybody. So there's been a mistranslation, a misunderstanding of this text, because it says the equipping of saints for, work, for works of ministry. It's this weird thing 
the comma isn't in the Greek. So you can't say for the equipping of the saints for works of ministry, comma. You should say for the equipping of the saints for the works of ministry, for the edifying of the body, three things. There is no professional class of minister whose job is to equip the saints of which the minister isn't a saint. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Right? So there's no, there's no organization of the church where there are a few of us who equip you to do it because you're saints and we're not saints. That is junk. And so long as you think that's junk, you sit here and let me and a few others do a little bit of work, right? And then we complain that the world is in crisis. But instead it says that grace gifts are given to who? All of us. All of us. And it all works as how many of us do our part? Everyone. So you telling me that you have, some of us have gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, and that God has given this to the entire church? Wouldn't that be amazing? No professional class of minister. Get that out of your mind. I don't know when that started. 313 when Holy Roman Emperor Constantine brought the church into the Roman Empire and then they started dressing up and wearing frocks and long dresses and doing fancy things and all of that junk and then preaching the gospel in the way they preached it and teaching it in Latin so that the people can't understand it so I'm preaching a gospel to you you can't understand unless you come to me and I'm the professional and I can tell you what it says what that leads to is effectively I tell you whatever I want it to say because you don't have a bible and you can't contradict it so what I tell you when your dead relative is in this weird place called purgatory you believe me and the only way you can release your dead relative from purgatory is to pay money to me that is the reason for the Reformation. Because the church created this class of minister and the people believed it. It's junk. Every one of us is a minister. Every one of us is a priest. Every one of us is a gift. And it's not age discriminatory. It's not just for the big people. It's for the little people. It's for the younger people. You have as much gift as they do. Don't let them tell you that you don't have anything. That you can't do the things that God has called you to do and shame them. Shame them in their complacency. Shame them in their laziness. Shame them in their sitting back and letting a few do it. You do it. And then we'll watch your zeal and we'll watch your energy and we'll watch your excitement and we'll be ashamed. And you'll transform the world that way. Wouldn't that be amazing? It's great having them there. I can beat up on everyone else. <laughs> All right, here's the approach to the, to the series. Because I've got to get to it. I'll get through. I'm gonna, we're going to use an analogy of a mirror. Right? So imagine this. Let me explain the analogy to you. If I held you up a mirror and in the mirror was an MMA fighter, what does an MMA fighter do? They hit people. Who likes to hit people? A couple of you. I know. How hard does an MMA fighter train? Pretty hard. Who likes to train hard? I'm holding the mirror up. Any MMA fighters, there used to be a guy called Luke who used to sit in the front, who is an MMA fighter. He would have been leaping all over this. What happens to MMA fighters in the ring? They get hit. You've got to be prepared to hit and get hit. They get elbowed in the head. They get all sorts of things. They get taken down. They get arm bars. They get choked out and all that sort of thing. So when I hold up the mirror of an MMA fighter, how many MMA fighters are there here? Zero. Amazing. Let's hold up another mirror. I hold up another mirror of a professional athlete. You know when you're watching track and field and you see someone who's like six foot seven, right? What sport are they likely to be doing? Which event? Track and field. High jump. 
their shape makes it easier for them to jump two meters something, right? The guy that's this high ain't getting over it. When you see someone whose build is stocky, what are they most likely to be doing? Are they most likely to be running the 10,000 meters? No, they're not. Shot putting or something like that, right? And so we understand from holding up the mirror, if you, and, and basketball's a great analogy, if you're born six foot eight, nine, ten, right, you're going to be a better basketball player than I was. I was terrible. I was born in Britain. We know nothing about basketball. <laughs> World's greatest soccer players. They haven't won a World Cup since 1966. <laughs> right? Are you getting the point? If I held up a mirror, and in the mirror was a medical worker, and you see a medical worker, and the first thing you see is a medical worker dealing with someone who's bleeding out. How many of you want to be a medical worker? I remember my parents wanted me to be a doctor, but I would faint at the sight of blood, other people's blood, my own blood. I have a cut on my hand right here. I was in my sister's kitchen one day, a glass dropped. It dropped, I tried to catch it because I didn't want to be in trouble for breaking the glass. I clearly caught the glass, sliced my finger open, they came out, found me out on the floor because I looked at the blood. <laughs> I'm not called to be a doctor, but if you hold up the mirror, I know it. You're getting the point. I'm going to hold up a mirror for you today. And we have a better mirror, and the mirror is the mirror of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says that we look at Jesus beyond the veil, beyond the lack of understanding that there is in the Old Testament. We look at him plainly with understanding and it says that we all, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. So what that's saying is if we hold up a mirror of Jesus, the one the Scripture says has every gift, perfect apostle, perfect prophet, perfect evangelist, perfect shepherd, perfect teacher, if I hold this mirror up to you as accurately as we can do it from Scripture, I'm not going to make this stuff up. I'm going to try and do it from Scripture, and it's not easy to do it from Scripture because there's all sorts of junk out there about this. If I hold this mirror up, and if you see in this mirror some aspect of the gift of apostle or prophet or evangelist or shepherd or teacher, it might mean that Jesus has given that gift to who? You. Oh. So that makes you responsible, if you're not using it, for the crisis in the church. That makes you responsible if you're not using it for the crisis in the world. It's not my fault alone. If God gives me a gift and I don't use it, then I'm responsible. If God's given you a gift, any of you younger folks, any of you older folks, okay? That's the approach each week. We're going to teach through each gift, and today we're beginning with the gift of apostle. I'm going to fly through it at 100 miles an hour, which is the reason for the Q&A at the end. We might finish in time. We'll see what happens. I came up with a definition. Can you put the definition up so you can look at it? And I want you just to look at that. You're not going to find that definition in any book because it doesn't exist in the book. I made it up from reading the scripture. My sense of personal call is to teach. I think the call, sense of call to teach is to do this kind of thing. Called, chosen by God, separated to his gospel, which is his good news, sent to establish foundations that endure in new context, persevering with an experience that is consistent with all apostles and with evident life signs. Can we read that together? Called, chosen by God, and separated to his gospel, and sent to establish, well, we can't read it if it's gone. Can you go back one? And sent to establish foundations that endure in new contexts, persevering with an experience 
consistent, and with evident life signs. So I'm going to break that definition down into its constituent components, and if you agree or disagree, we can talk about that later. But I think this is an authentic definition of what an apostle is. Firstly, called, chosen by God, and separated to his gospel, which is his good news. If you look at the beginning of any of the books that Paul wrote, or most of them, the first verse of Romans, someone look up the first verse of Romans. You could also look up first the first verse of 1 and 2 Corinthians, the first verse of Galatians, the first verse of Ephesians, of Colossians, or 1 and 2 Timothy of Titus. Paul begins each of those letters in about the same way. He generally says, Paul, an apostle, called, chosen, separated by God to his gospel. Paul, an apostle, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. So Paul, an apostle, is saying that at the end of the day, he's one who is called by God, chosen by God, and set apart, that's what separated means. It means separated from the world to the gospel. That means you're focused on it. You're saying that I'm going to be like a professional athlete. I'm trying to run a fast time. I'm not going to be eating cake all day, right? I'm separated for the gospel. That means I'm separated. I'm saying that I'm going to live my life in a way that means that living for the gospel is a priority. It's primacy to me. That's what Paul says. He begins each of his letters. It's amazing. You write a letter to someone and you begin by saying, this is who I am. And I'm not ashamed of it. Judge me on it, he's almost saying, that if I write junk, if I live a life that is inconsistent with who God's called me to, if you look at me and think he's not separated, he's like got one foot in the world and one foot in the, in the church, and he's, he's half committed, and he's not really that committed, and he, he lives badly, and he writes things that aren't right, we'd have a problem with that. But he starts every letter with a statement of authority because he knows that he can back it up with what comes next. Called, chosen by God, separated to his gospel, his good news. The second thing, sent to establish foundations that endure. The meaning of the Greek word for apostle is envoy, ambassador, messenger, delegate. What's an ambassador, an envoy, a messenger, and delegate? It's someone that I send on my behalf to go and represent me in a context that I'm not in. If one of you sends, you send John to go tell someone something, John's going to represent you wherever you send John, right? Okay. Jesus himself is the one that the Father sends. You can find that all over the scripture. Hebrews 3 verse 1, John 6 verse 29, John 17 3, John 20 21. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. 1 John 4 9 to 10, Jesus is the one sent into the world from where? Where does Jesus originate? Sent to earth. You're understanding that. You're sent, and this is the next thing we'll look at, but not yet. You're sent somewhere. Called by God, chosen by God, separated from his gospel. In other words, get the fact that it's important that you do this. And stop doing the things that get in the way of it and interfere with it. And get on with it. And now I'm going to send you to do something as my ambassador, as my representative, as my authority, as my messenger, as my delegate. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So that means you're sent to establish what? Foundations. You're sent to build something. You're sent to plant something. You're sent to start something. Foundations that go away when they're troubled? No. Foundations that endure. The foundations that the apostles built, who's still standing on them? We are. 
The church stood through all of history and all the history through it, and it's still here because the apostles built good foundations, not shaky foundations, not sand that when the, the waves and the wind came destroyed it, but foundations that endured a church that is built on the foundations of the apostles with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 11, Paul speaks of himself as one who lays foundations others build on, but he's clear that the only foundation you can lay is Jesus Christ, no other. In other words, you start laying foundations that aren't Jesus, it's the wrong foundation. It's a foundation that's not going to endure. And this is the amazing thing. You get to the other end of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 14. It says that the walls of the heavenly city have 12 foundations. Think about that, that in heaven somehow there is established this heavenly city that has 12 foundations. And on each of our foundations is listed the names of the 12 apostles. So that they start something on earth and this endures and becomes part even of the internal heavenly city. Foundations built foundations that last, foundations that endure. The third aspect of this is where? In new contexts. The apostle goes to new contexts, as Jesus did. Jesus begins in heaven, and his context that he walks in, that the Father sends him to is earth, an entirely new context to establish foundations on earth that endure. Paul goes as he is sent. Where? The scripture says a series of missionary journeys. Some say three, some say four, some say they aren't even all recorded in the Bible. Seems he may have traveled over 10,000 miles. Think about that. Imagine if any one of you was called by God, traveled over 10,000 miles, and like Paul, went to more than 50 cities preaching the gospel laying foundations, establishing churches. And we're not worried so much about the actual churches he established. We're more worried about the foundation of the big C, the church that he built and laid in each of those places that we're still beneficiaries of. If you take Paul out of the New Testament, where are we? If Paul doesn't heed his call to be an apostle, where are we? It's that significant that if God calls you to do something that is apostolic and you don't do it, then the world suffers and the church suffers. He may call someone else, he might not. Turn to 2 Corinthians, would you please? 2 Corinthians verse 10. Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And just quick show of hands when the majority of you are there. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Enough hands. Paul says, we will not boast beyond limits. So he has in mind that there are limits to his authority, to his calling. But we will boast only with regards to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. See, the apostle is given an area of influence, a sphere of influence, a place that he or she is designated by God. They understand where they're not meant to go. They understand where God has designated for them to reach, in this case, it was the Corinthians Verse 14, we're not overextending ourselves. We don't go further than God has told us to go. We were the very first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Imagine that. They'd actually achieved this. These guys hadn't gone. These people don't hear the gospel. But they recognize that God has designated a context, a, a sphere, and they say, we're going to go to that place, and we're going to do the thing that God has told us to do. Our hope is that as your faith increases, our air of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Verse 16, 
so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. So there's a sense in which it's, 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 it's ongoing. We've come to here, we've preached to this sphere, this new context, but there's another new context that we're going to go to that context, we're going to go to this context and that context. We're going to keep laying foundations that endure because God called us and sent us and told us and we separated ourselves to the gospel and we did it and we continue to do it. And the fourth aspect of this definition is persevering with an experience consistent with all apostles. This is really important. I think it's hard to call yourself an apostle if your experience doesn't line up with the experience of all the other apostles. 2 Corinthians 12.9 speaks of the signs of the apostle. It says, The signs of the apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. I've said with evident life signs. A life sign is something... Um, don't, don't put this next one up because this will confuse us because we're going to have to go back. Um, but it's a sense in which something happens that is clearly evident that God is at work and God is doing something to cause this person to overcome the world. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so whatever the world throws at you, if you overcome that, and that might be through miracles, it might be through healing, it might be through something else. But these things followed the apostles. Everywhere they went, it was clear that where the apostles went, these things happened. It was as if God was backing them up and saying, this person has genuine authority. I think that should be the same today. And 1 Corinthians 4, 9 to 13, let's all turn to this because we're going to read this. I've heard this preached in this way. I know a minister who often says, who in the room is an apostle? and ask people to put their hands up, and then he reads what I'm about to read. I'm not going to embarrass you with that. We'll just read it. 1 Corinthians 9, 4, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 9 to 13. Everybody there. We've just read that perseverance is important. Perseverance through what? Through this. Paul says, I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. I'm holding up my hand for the apostles' job description. We've been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. You are fools. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished. We are dishonored. If you throw those three together, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as of the filth of the world. What is the filth of the world? Where does that stuff tend to go? In the sewer, toilet. What's he talking about? We're the worst. We're the stuff that goes down the toilet and into the sewer of the world. The offscouring of all things until now. Paul, an apostle, says this is his job description. Who wants to be an apostle if that's the job description? Do you? I don't. If God calls you to it, that's a whole different matter. But I cannot accept that we can call ourselves one, be one, if we don't have an experience that lines up with the apostles for all time. We can't be prophets today if we don't have an experience that lines up with all prophets. We can't be teachers if we don't have an experience that lines up with all teachers. We can't be evangelists, shepherds, 
if we don't have an experience that lines up with all of them, because otherwise we're something that is weird. And interestingly, it says in 2 Corinthians 11:13 that the church has a responsibility to test everyone who says they're a false apostle and prove them wrong. One of the things that Jesus says to the church in Revelation, the first church in Revelation 2:2, is you've, one of the good things he has against him, he says, you've tested everyone who says they're an apostle and you've found them to be liars. 2 Corinthians 11:13 actually says that the false apostle is a little bit like Satan who masquerades as an angel of light. So the church has responsibility to test. So you may be called and chosen by God and separated to the gospel and sent to lay foundations that endure in new context, persevering with signs following, evident signs that God is backing you up in what you do. But at the end of the day, church's responsibility is to say, well, okay, prove it, prove it. Prove that you're of the line, in the line with Paul. Prove that you're in the line with the others. And you shouldn't be afraid of this. Because if you're not an apostle, you might be something else. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> to not be condemned to death. A spectacle to the world. A fool for Christ's sake. Weak, dishonored, hungering, thirsting, poorly clothed, beaten, homeless being reviled, being persecuted, being defamed, the filth of the world to men and to angels. That's the mirror I'm holding up for you today. I said it was going to be an honest mirror. I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to hold up a mirror that, that is an unreal mirror. I want to hold up a mirror, and if you see any fragment of yourself in that, that's fine then God may have gifted you with some aspect of the gift of apostle. There are examples in Scripture, of course, Jesus himself, of course, the first apostles who are named in Matthew 10, 1 to 4. And with careful study, and it's really difficult to do this, and there are actually arguments about whether there are others in Scripture, but I think that you can identify Barnabas and Andronicus and Junior and Titus and Epaphroditus, James, the brother of Jesus, who's the author of the book of James, and we can talk about where to find those later in the Q&A thing afterwards. You want me to point you to that. And so it might mean that they weren't just the original ones. There were others through the course of the New Testament as written. And they may have been more through the course of history. And there may be some here today. As I held up the mirror, not of an MMA fighter. Or the high jumper. <laughs> or the person that doesn't faint at the sight of blood. But the one who is called by God to be his ambassador, separates themselves, say, this is so serious that I'm going to separate myself from everything else. I'm going to go, God, where you send me. And I'm going to establish in new contexts foundations that endure. One of the things we're going to do each week was firstly, the approach is going to be literally this. We're going to define it. We're going to show you where the definition comes from. We're going to give you some examples, as I've just given you a few there. We're going to then speak about strengths and weakness, and then we're going to talk practically. When I come to strengths and weaknesses, I'm just going to mention four that you see evident in all the apostles, or some of the apostles. One of them is focus over versus over focus. You get that? The strength is that you're focused. The weakness is that you're too focused, right? You see that in yourself. You can be so focused 
that you're over-focused. There's an instance in the scripture when, John, when Paul has a dispute with Barnabas over John Mark. You'll find it in Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. There's a question as to whether they should take this guy called John Mark on the missionary journey with them because John Mark has been someone who he flaked out. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't come up to the standard. And so when John and I are going on the next ministry journey, we have a question. Should we bring that guy who left us behind last time? And you say, and I say, oh, come on, John. Give him another chance. And you say, I say, please, John, think about his heart. And we're encouraging him and helping him out. And you say, why not? Because he let us down once. This is what Paul says. Barnabas, who has the heart of a pastor, says yes. And so Paul and Barnabas separate. Imagine that in the early church, there's an argument that's so terrible that Paul and Barnabas go in opposite directions. And Barnabas hangs on to John Mark. But the good thing is that later in Paul's journey, you see that Paul says, bring this guy, because he's actually now useful for me. So it seems as if there's been a process of healing and of restoration and reconciliation even to Paul. But the apostle is so focused, I'm going to do this thing. I can't think about that. I can do this thing. I don't have time for that. I can do this thing. I don't have time for that person. I'm going to do this thing. Get out of my way. They've got blinkers on like a horse. They're so focused. Is that you? The people accuse you of being over-focused. But it's actually God-focused. Another strength, zealous. Apostles are zealous. The weakness is they're overzealous. There's an example when Jesus sends his disciples out. Um, and, and some of them go to a particular place and the people in that place don't receive him and the disciples come back and say Jesus should we call fire down from heaven on the ones that didn't receive us that is zeal isn't it and Jesus is like you don't know no no I came for these people I came to love these people to die for them you just want to call fire down that is zeal the apostle is not only focused and zealous but over-focused and too zealous. There's another time when the disciples come back and they've seen some other guys who are casting demons out and they say, we saw some people casting demons out and they weren't with us, right? Jesus is like, guys, seriously. Those who aren't against us are with us. It's not all about you. But you're recognizing these characteristics of the apostle. Because I don't know that you get to the far land if you're not so focused that when someone says, take this person, you're like, if I take that person, I might not make it. Stop and do this. If I stop and do that, I might not make it. I might not make it to the 50 plus countries. I might not make it over 10,000 miles. I might not establish the gospel in all these new contexts if I wait for that John Mark. Let's not worry about John Mark. Let's just get on with it. That's a trait of an apostle. There's another trait of an apostle is confidence. That's a strength. Weakness is overconfidence. Let me give you an example. Simon Peter. There's a point when Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Think about that. Jesus turns to you and says, I've had a conversation with Satan. You're like, huh? <laughs> and he's asked to sift you like wheat. What's that mean? Put you in something big and shake you until you're wrecked. And Peter's response, because he's confident, is, not me. <laughs> not me. I'll never deny you. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, you ain't getting it. You have a confidence about you that is too much. And the proof is going to be that you're going to deny me three times. This is another characteristic of an apostle. Overconfidence is the weakness. Confidence is the strength. And the last one is there's a struggle to discern the right idea in, in Acts 16, um, verses 6 to 12. There's a point at which it says that Paul is trying to work out where to go. He's well, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to go there. It says in Acts 16, 6, that they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And I don't know what that means. 
What does it mean that the Holy Spirit forbids them? He said, I forbid you, Paul, to go to Asia in a voice, in a dream, whatever. Or they were trying and the circumstances didn't line up. Whatever it is, Paul's struggling to work out here or there or here or there or here or there. He has a dream. In his dream, there's a man from Macedonia saying, come here. So he wakes up and says, let's go there. And so the struggle of the apostle is to work out what to do with the ideas that are overflowing in you. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. You might get it wrong. And sometimes you've got to trust for God to shut the doors. Sometimes you've got to listen to the dreams that say this way, not that way. Sometimes you've got to go to the place that the person in the dream says to come to. Those are just a few strengths and weaknesses of the apostle. Focus versus overfocus. Zealous versus overzealous. Confidence versus overconfidence. And then this ongoing struggle to discern the right idea. And let me wrap up here. So practically... This is a mirror I've held up. It's the best mirror I can present. There may be better mirrors that another teacher can come up with. Bring them and let them do it. You may be that person. If you are, shame on you, because you should be teaching. But I'm inviting the conversation after anybody who's seen anything and thinks, I've seen some fragments of that in myself. Maybe not all of it. Some things that make me afraid. I'm afraid of that job description of the apostle. I don't like it. I don't want to be called the filth of the earth. I don't want angels laughing at me and mocking me. And well, They're not mocking, but angels are gazing and thinking, oh, you poor thing. Oof. That's what this is about. The angels and men are looking at how Paul and Peter and the other apostles suffer. And they're like, oh. Is that you? You're called to that nevertheless. Let's close with this definition, because this gift can be at work anywhere. Doesn't mean you have to be a professional minister, doesn't mean you have to go to seminary, doesn't mean you have to change one thing unless you take seriously the whole concept of being separated to this. And then you might quit everything, everything. And like Paul, work with your hands and you pay your way and you get it done in the context that God says, go here, build a foundation. Lay a foundation, a foundation that endures, because if you don't do it, no one else will do it. Called, chosen by God, separated to his gospel, and sent to establish foundations that endure in new contexts, persevering with an experience consistent with all apostles and with evident life signs. Is that you? If it is, let's talk about it afterwards. If you think it might be, let's talk about it afterwards. If there's a little aspect of it you've seen and not the rest of it, let's talk about it also. Because it doesn't say how much of a measure that God gives. You might get a fragment of this and a fragment of prophet and a fragment, a bigger fragment of shepherd and no teaching and a little bit of evangelist. And by the end of this, I hope you've seen some aspect of yourself in at least one of these mirrors that we present. And maybe a little bit in all of them, because if you held the mirror up to Jesus, he sees himself perfectly in every one of them. But it says he ascends and he gives gifts to everyone. And everyone, hold your hand up if you're everyone. Everyone is called for the sake of the world, for the sake of his church, to save us from the crisis, to use the gift that God's given You see, the first apostles responded to Jesus' call for the benefit of the church. 
for the benefit of the world and for our benefit. How will you respond? How will you respond? For the sake of future generations, for the sake of the crisis that you see in the world that you think is somebody else's fault, that you want to lay on the professional ministers until they burn out and can't do it and quit. What if it's because you aren't doing your part?